And if you've got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 13. New Testament, fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John is one of four Gospels that tells the story of Jesus' ministry. And really, a Gospel simply means good news. This is the good news of what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's anointed Redeemer, has done for us. Um, now, if we were to take the book of John and just kind of look at it, from, step back and look at it as a whole, we could really divide this, this book up into two pieces. The first half, John's 1, chapters 1 through 12, is Jesus' public ministry. It's him going out, teaching people, challenging some of the, the mindsets of the day of people saying, you know, God is all about the law. He's going, hold on, you're missing God's heart in all of this. But it's not just teaching, it's also ministering to people's needs, addressing them, the tangible needs in front of them, sometimes miraculously. And as he taught, as he ministered, as he did miracles, people were left with a choice to decide who do I say he is. And some people concluded he was either a liar or a lunatic, right? And they completely rejected him. Whereas others said, no, this is not a liar or a lunatic. This is the Lord of heaven. This is God in human flesh. And those people who put their faith in him became his disciples. A disciple is simply a follower, somebody who follows and learns from someone. And so they said, I want to be a disciple of you. I want to learn to be more like you. I want to allow you to influence my life. Well, those individuals that followed him, his disciples, some of them gave up their entire lives walking away from everything that they knew, their families, their, their livelihoods to be with him. Others continued to live where they were, but they, they learned from him and called themselves Christ followers. Now, there were some, however, who had determined, you know, I, I don't believe that this guy is the Messiah. In fact, I think he's dangerous because he's going to bring Rome down upon us. And so many people who rejected him, decided he was either a liar or a lunatic, actually became very adversarial towards Jesus. And we see this particularly amongst the religious elite of Jesus's day. They were very vehemently opposed to him and they did anything they could to catch him in a lie, to catch him in some sort of a theological untruth so they could say, see, we knew it. You are a fraud and get other people to reject him as well. So that's the first 12 chapters. It's Jesus' public ministry. And now in John chapter 13, we start a new section. And this will run through the end of the, the gospel. John chapter 13 through chapter 21 really focus on Jesus' private final hours before his arrest, his kind of puppet trial, his beating, ultimately his murder, and finally culminating in his resurrection from the dead, proving once and for all that he was who he claimed to be. And as we dive in here, we're going to see... Before I actually get into John 13, I just want to throw out a hypothetical for you for just a moment. I want you to imagine that you went to the doctor and the doctor said, you have less than 24 hours to live. At the end of 24 hours, you will no longer be living. I just want you to consider for a moment. How would you spend that time who would you choose to spend it with? What would you want to say to them? What would you want to get across to them so that when you are no longer with them, they would know it, know it deep down inside? And I recognize that this may be a morbid question, but for Jesus it was a reality. Because as we begin John chapter 13, Jesus is intimately aware of the fact that his time is short, that he has less than 24 hours before he will be hanging on a cross breathing his last breath. And so he chose to surround himself with his closest friends and followers, his disciples. 
And he chose to speak truth into their life so that they would be prepared, not just for the next day or two of what was coming, but so that they would be prepared to be his representatives even when he went to be with the Father in heaven after his resurrection. He is preparing them to be his representatives. And so as we dive into John chapter 13, the upper room discourse, the conversation that Jesus is going to have begins in chapter 13, but it runs for four chapters. So we're not going to be able to tackle all of it today. We're going to just look at a a portion of it. So this is going to be a conversation over the next couple of weeks that we'll be looking at. But today he begins by speaking truth into his disciples' lives. And we're going to begin in John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Now, the Passover was one of three festivals each year that the Jewish men and most of Israelites would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate something that God had done in their history. The Passover particularly points to the time when God redeemed his people out of slavery and brought them into the promised land. And we're not going to spend the time this morning to go into the detail. There's a tremendous amount of symbolism about the fact that Jesus' crucifixion culminates out of the, the Passover festival. We're not going to go into that today. We'll talk more about that when we get closer to Easter. But suffice it to say, there is a tremendous amount of symbolism. And, and I've found that our God is a God of props. He, he typically recognizes that many of us learn through imagery. So he will give us images and say, okay, in the same way of this, this. And he'll help teach us a, deep, a deeper meaning. We're going to see that even play out a little bit in John chapter 13 today. So it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. He knew his time of ministry, his public ministry had kind of run its course. And now it was time for God to do his will. And having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. The evening wheel was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Well, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drawing them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, we read this with 21st century ears, and we go, that's awesome. It's a beautiful picture of servanthood. We fail to recognize that in his day, in that age, foot washing was a menial task, and this is outrageous that Jesus would choose to do this. Let me give you a little bit of background. In that day and age, people are walking around in sandals on dirt streets. Animals are using the same streets. There's a lot of filth in those areas. And as you walk around for long enough, your feet are going to get dirty. Now, my wife won't touch my feet today. You can imagine how bad it would be if I were walking around in sandals in that day. I mean, down in Mexico, my feet were filthy. Okay? So you get to the point where foot washing was something that was reserved only for the lowest of the low. Slaves were the ones who washed feet. And even some Jewish rabbis said it is such a menial task that even Jewish slaves should never be asked to wash feet. In fact, this should be something reserved only for Gentile slaves, only for non-Jewish slaves. And to see then Jesus get down on his hands and his knees and begin to wash the grime off of his disciples' feet, it was audacious. What are you doing? No, this, this just doesn't happen. That a rabbi, God in human flesh, would begin to serve his disciples in that way. It was demeaning. 
Which is understandable then that one of his disciples, at least Peter, would respond with as much like, no, what are you doing? So we read now in verse 6, when he came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you really going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later on you're going to understand. Peter said, no, you're never going to wash my feet. I'm sorry, but you're my Lord. This is beneath you. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And I love Peter because he is a very person. I get this. So he goes from, no, you're never going to touch my feet to, okay, then wash all of me. Right? He goes, well, then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Wash me. I want everything to do with you. Jesus, I can, I can imagine Jesus is smiling at this point because he knows Peter. He's spent at least three years walking around with this guy and he loves him. Jesus said, those who have had a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is already clean. And you, Peter, are clean, though not every one of you. And at this moment, there's a, a dark kind of note that plays into this otherwise really warm conversation he's having. Not every one of you is clean. He goes on to say, verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not every one of you is clean. Well, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and you call me Lord. And rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, and every time we see very truly, it means amen, amen. This is Jesus' way of, of highlighting something he doesn't want them to miss. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So now that I, I'm sorry, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm your Lord. I'm your teacher. You call me rabbi. That is right, because that's who I am. And now I've modeled for you servanthood. And I'm calling you to do the same thing to one another. Now that you know these things, if you do them, you will be blessed. And now that darker note that he just kind of hinted at comes back into the forefront. I am not referring to all of you. This is verse 18. I know those whom I've chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture that he who shared my bread has turned his heel against me. Jesus is saying, it's been prophesied from long time before us that there would be someone who would turn his heel against the Messiah. Verse 19, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am, that I was not taken by surprise. Very truly, amen, amen, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, Amen, amen, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. We know from previous chapters that Jesus knew what was in a man's heart. He knew the people around him. And he knew his disciples intimately. He knew every single one of them, including Judas, the guy who would ultimately be the one who betrays him. He knew that Judas was stealing money from the communal money that they carried around. Judas was the one in charge of it. And he knew that Judas would often help himself from the coffers in order to meet his own needs. And yet Jesus allowed him to remain 
This isn't something that's taking Jesus by surprise. And he tells his disciples up front, this is going to happen. So that they wouldn't be surprised by it, so that they wouldn't go, oh, he had no idea. What, what was that all about? This must have not been part of his plan. No, this was very much a part of God's plan. Jesus was resigned to the fact that one of his closest friends and disciples was going to betray him. Well, his disciples stared at one another after he's just said, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. So one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the way that John, the writer of this gospel, refers to himself, which is interesting. <clears throat> the one who, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. They're, they're sitting at this table and it's unlike anything we, we know. It's kind of like a, it's called a triclinium. It's a table that's kind of one side here and then two on the side and the people who were serving could kind of walk in and they would literally recline with their elbow down, leaning forward and their legs behind them. So literally they're leaning against one another. And, and one of the guys, John, is leaning against Jesus. And Peter motions to John and says, hey, ask him which one he means. Which, which one of us is he talking about? So John kind of leans over to Jesus and goes, so who's it going to be? Um... So that was verse 25. Verse 26, Jesus answered, It's the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Now, I used to think that, that John kind of publicly said, Hey, who's it going to be? And Jesus goes, The one whom I dip this piece of bread in the dish and give it to. And then he goes, Here, Judas. But the next couple of verses suggest that the disciples had no idea what that symbolism was and what was going on. And when Jesus, Judas gets up and leaves, they're like, where's he going? Maybe he's going to buy food for the dinner. Or, you know, maybe he's going to go give alms to the poor because that's what we do on Passover time. They had no idea. So the reality is that Jesus and John were kind of having this intimate little dialogue that nobody else is hearing. And John, the writer of the gospel, is able to give us that information because he alone was the only one who was kind of privy to that information. So Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I would give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And then he dipped a piece of bread and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. And so Jesus told him, hey, what you're about to do, do it quickly. Just get it over with. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Okay, so they obviously had not been privy to the fact that the bread symbolized something. Verse 29, since Judas had charge of the money, some thought he was telling them to go buy what they needed for the festival, to go buy something for their meal that they were having, or to give something to the poor. So as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Very interesting that John includes the point that it was nighttime. Because remember in chapter 12, as you guys looked at last week, there are, there are a number of places where John has this play on light and darkness. We read in verse 35 of chapter 12, Jesus said to them, you are going to only have the light a little while longer. Walk while you still have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you, are, while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. And then a few verses later in verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Or all the way back to John chapter 3 when Jesus said, here's the verdict, light has come into the world, but men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. It is not surprising that John includes that detail that it was nighttime when Judas left because he is doing deeds that are in complete opposition to who Jesus was. Jesus is the light, and Judas is saying, I'm rejecting the light. I'm choosing to walk in darkness. And the machinery of Jesus' final hours begins. It's almost like we've hit, the, we've hit the watch, and the countdown begins. 
as soon as Judas leaves in verse 31, Jesus now turns back to the other 11. He knows now the countdown timer is on. His time is very short. And so now he really gets down to brass tacks. Verse 31, when, he, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and he will glorify him at once. And I go, huh? That, that, to paraphrase what Jesus has just said, he's telling his guys, listen, it started. What is about to transpire will bring glory to God. And if it brings glory to God, then God will glorify me. So do not be shocked and dismayed at what is about to happen. This is part of God's will. This is for God's glory. Verse 33, my children, he uses a term that rabbis would use to speak to their disciples. It is a term of endearment. My children, I will be with you for only a little longer. You're going to look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I'm now telling you where I'm going, you cannot come. At least not yet. And so, those of you who are going to remain after me to be my representatives, here's what you need to know. A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Because by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You're going to be my representatives, so here's how you represent me. Love one another. Well, Simon Peter's still stuck on the fact that Jesus just said he couldn't go with him. He said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot come follow me now, but you will follow me later, Peter. And Peter's like, no, 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 you don't get it. Why can't I follow you now? I, I'll lay down my life. I'll go anywhere you go. I'm your guy. <laughs> and I love Peter because I get him. I'm like all in, Right. He's a very person, regardless of whether he's going in the right direction or, or, or the wrong direction, he's got one speed on, and he is going. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, amen, amen, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. We know how that plays out. And I know that we're, it feels like we're stopping in mid-conversation because the reality is we are stopping mid-conversation. There's three more chapters of, of conversation and preparation before Jesus ultimately is arrested and, and the final hours of his life and his resurrection begin. We'll get to that next week. I just want to focus on this chapter for a moment and, and look at a couple of things. First off, if we step back from this chapter and what we've just read, there are really two things that are going on. The first is Judas, this guy whom has been a part of Jesus's inner circle, who has decided that Jesus is not the Messiah that he wanted. That, I mean, he just had this woman wash his feet with this expensive perfume, and Jesus let it happen. It was such a waste, and he's going, gosh, this guy just doesn't get it. I'm over him, because he's not my kind of conquering hero that I want. He's not my Messiah. And so instead, he looks to, for a way that he can benefit himself and sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. That's one portion, and Jesus isn't taken by surprise by that. Jesus is well aware of what is happening, and he is resigned to the fact that that is Judas' choice. But the second theme that's taking place in this is by far the more central one. And it kind of stems from what Jesus told his disciples. A new command I give you. Love one another. 
in the same way that I've loved you, so I'm calling you to love one another. And by this, in the way you love one another, everyone will know you're my disciples. So in the same way that I have loved you, so I'm calling you, love one another. Well, how did Jesus show his love for his disciples? In this moment, in this particular instance, he showed it by tangibly taking off his robe and taking the position, the posture of a servant, getting down on his knees and beginning to wash the grime off of his disciples' feet. That's how he showed his love for them. Which contrasts very sharply, by the way, with people around Jesus. Just in chapter 12, turn back to chapter 12 for just a moment. And go, I want you to go to verse 42 for just a second. Because I want you to see the way that Jesus' actions of washing his disciples' feet, taking a very socially unacceptable, low-key, demeaning position, contrasts so sharply with other people around him who are so hyper-focused on what other people think about them that they will literally change their actions and their attitudes. They will literally hold back in doing what they feel is right because they're afraid of other people's opinions. We read in verse 42 that there were even then some people amongst the leaders who believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. That verse right there, verse 43, they loved human praise more than praise for God is one I dwell on a lot. The reality is, when we don't know who we are, when we don't feel secure in our identity, it can be very easy to put a tremendous amount of stock in other people's opinions about us. When we don't feel acceptable in and of ourselves, we begin to look to other people to tell us we're acceptable. We look to other people to validate us. And the scary part is, quite often, we, we will basically say, what do you want me to do in order to earn your validation? You want me to be the silly kind of like silly guy? I can do that. Oh, you want me to be serious? I can do that. You want me to to continue to serve in these ways? I can do that because my identity comes from my my work, right? And what I do. You want me to climb the corporate ladder? I can do that. You want me to dress a certain way? I can do that. What do you want from me? You want me to starve myself so I look a certain way? I can do that. And we begin to give people the power to define us. We begin to give people the power to tell us whether we're okay or not. Because quite honestly, in and of ourselves, we don't feel like we're acceptable. We don't feel like we're okay. And I can tell you that far too much of my life has been spent trying to earn people's validation. It's exhausting because you're only as good as your last performance. And it feels like you're on a perpetual hamster wheel running for other people to please them. And they are a fickle crowd. Darn you other people. (laughs) And in contrast, we have Jesus. In contrast, we have Jesus who is willing to buck the social system and get down on his hands and his knees and wash his disciples' feet, taking the position of the lowest of the lowest slave. Why? I would suggest that the key, the key to Jesus' actions is found in verse 3 of chapter 13. Go back there with me. 
we read in verse 3 of chapter 13 that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And he knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash his disciples' feet. The reality is Jesus knew who he was. He was the Son of God. He was God's kid, loved by him. And he knew what he was about. He was about the Father's business, pure and simple. Jesus didn't need to look to other people to tell him he was okay. He didn't need to look to other people to tell him, hey, you'd make a really good Messiah. Hey, you're acceptable to God. Hey, you're a really neat guy. He didn't need any of that, so he didn't need to perform. He didn't need to live up to expectations. Instead, he lived for an audience of one, his father. And he said, I only do what I see the father do it. I'm about bringing about his will. So he knew who he was and he knew what he was about. When we begin to rest in our identity, to know who we are as sons and daughters of God, washed in Jesus' blood, all of a sudden the urgency to kind of earn God's love dissipates. The urgency to start earning other people's approval dissipates. When we don't know who we are, people's opinions about us carry a tremendous amount of weight. Their compliments can, blow, can begin to inflate our heads and blow them out of proportion. And their critique can crush us. But when we find our identity in God and we can rest in that, people's critique, I'm sorry, people's compliments, while nice to hear, don't blow our head out of proportion. And their critiques don't crush us because our identity is not dependent upon their opinions about us. We can begin to minister to people out of kind of the security of knowing who we are rather than to minister to people hoping that they will go, wow, what a neat person. I validate you. Thumbs up. It is a liberating place to know who we are and to know what we're about. And so then Jesus said to his disciples, I'm your Lord. I am your master. I'm your rabbi. And I have done these things for you. So now you do them for others. I've set for you an example of what to do. So do it. You'll be blessed if you do it. Now, one other point before we, we go into a time of worship. Not only was God calling us to model Not only was he exhibiting for us, modeling for us a kind of servant attitude, but I don't want us to get stuck on this act of foot washing as if that is how we serve other people. It was simply, remember how I said God was a God of props? It was simply a prop. It was simply something he did to kind of get them thinking, to wake them up, to get their attention. It certainly got Peter's attention. But it was a symbol of something far greater. He wasn't just about cleaning the grime off of their feet. He was about cleansing them so that they could have an intimate relationship with God, so that they could rightfully be called sons and daughters of God. And so the foot washing actually pointed to a much deeper way that God showed his love for us and that Jesus served us. And that is through a sacrifice on the cross. A little later in this same conversation in John chapter 15, Jesus will say to his disciples, there is no greater love than this to lay down one's life for a friend. 
And that was precisely what Jesus was going to do. He was going to lay down his life to cleanse us. And you don't have to turn here, but in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus interrupts a a, a bit of an argument between the disciples in which they're arguing about who's the most important and the best of the disciples, right? Well, you know, I was the first disciple. Yeah, but I was with Jesus when he did. Oh, but you know, I'm the one Jesus loved, right? So they're having this bickering argument about who's the best and Jesus stops them and he goes, listen, guys. Whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And then he points to himself using the the term he often uses of himself, the son of man. And he said, for even the son of man, even I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So how did Jesus show his love for us? Yeah, he, he washed their feet. But more importantly, he cleansed us through what he did on the cross. He, the the Bible, I'm sorry, yeah, the Bible says that cursed is anybody who hangs on a tree. He took that curse upon himself. He took the most gruesome, painful, sacrificial death that, that Rome, which was a country, a nation that was renowned for their ability to hurt people in the, in the end of their life. And he took that upon himself. He took our sins upon himself. He who knew not sin experienced all of our sins so that we could stand before God, not as sinners cowering before an angry God, but as saints, saved sinners, as sons and daughters of the living God, washed in his blood so we can come just as we are. So when we ask the question, well, who am I? Am I... A parent? Well, that's a role that I play. Am I a husband? Well, that's a role that I play. Am I a pastor? Yeah, that's something I do. Am I a friend? Yeah, absolutely. Am I Eric of the clan Wayman? Yes, I am. But all of those are roles that I play. At at my core, I am a son of God, created in his image, washed in Jesus' blood. And called to do his will. And as I begin to live out my life through that identity, that brings God so much pleasure. And so if you were to ask me, well, Eric, who am I? You're not what you do. You're not who you know and who you hang out with. You're not what you wear. You're not your grade point average. You're not your job. You're not your bank account. You are a son and a daughter of God. Created in his image. And endowed with unique gifts and abilities that he has entrusted to you to represent him. And just watching you grow into your identity, watching you grow to be who he's called you to be, that brings him more pleasure than you will ever understand. So you can stop trying to earn his love. You can stop trying to define yourself based upon what other people say about you. And may you just rest in that knowledge. And Jesus, then, on that same night, as he and his disciples were sitting there, Jesus pointed to the meal that was around him. And again, being a God of props, he used some props that were right in front of him. And he said, listen, this bread... 
This bread symbolizes my body that I'm giving for you. So every time you eat this bread, eat of it in memory of me. And and this wine that we're about to drink symbolizes my blood that is going to be shed on that cross to cover your sins so that you don't have to try to earn righteousness by your own strength. Because guess what? You never could if you wanted to. So every time you drink this cup, you remember that your identity is based upon grace, not upon good works. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to to take the communion elements, and in a few minutes, once everybody has gotten theirs, we're going to take it. But I'm getting ahead of myself because I suspect that there might be some of us here this morning who, if we're real honest with ourselves, would conclude, you know, I, I don't know that I would call myself a son or a daughter of God. I certainly haven't been living that way, but more importantly, I have not accepted the gift of grace that Jesus offered to me on the cross. I've been trying to earn it. And may I be the first to say, I am not deserving of what Jesus did. None of us are. You cannot earn this gift, which makes it a gift. So if there is anyone here this morning who just wants to begin a relationship with God, it's really easy. There's nothing magic to it. It begins with a prayer of of acceptance, but it doesn't end there. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Beginning a journey of following Jesus and saying, I want to be your disciple. I want to learn from you. I want to become more like you simply begins by an acceptance of his invitation to follow him. And it goes something like this. If if what I'm about to pray is the true cry of your heart, then I invite you to pray it along with me. Jesus, I don't deserve what you did for me on the cross. And I don't fully understand what you did. But I do know this. I am tired of trying to be the captain of my own ship. I am exhausted from trying to earn acceptance and validation from you and everyone else. Jesus, I accept your gift and I invite you to come into my life and be my Lord. I invite you to come in and clean house I want to know you more. So have your way with me. Jesus, in your name, amen.